Let's turn to Micah chapter 5. We're going to begin reading at verse 2 and then read down through verse 15. We'll finish out the chapter. That's on page 779. If you would like to use a Bible from the pew, it should be one in front of you. Thank you guys for leading us this morning. Our worship team, some out of town, some sickness, but uh, grateful for how you guys prepare and to lead us. I'm grateful as well for uh, Carl and Freddie in the last couple of weeks, uh, them picking up in Micah. Micah is such a hard book that uh, I just skipped town for a couple of weeks so that they could, they could handle that. So, and, um, um, uh, and, um, but it's good to be back. Now, I was told this morning that Diane was missed over the last couple of weeks, and uh, I get that. I, I, I believe that. Someone had asked Freddie if there was another church looking at me, and uh, Freddie assured them that nobody else would have me. So... <laughs> That part's a joke, but the last part. But this is God's word for us this morning. And begin in verse 2. This is what God says, Micah chapter 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is of old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrians come into our land and, and treads in our palaces, then we will ra ra raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like the dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces. And there is none to deliver your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off all the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off your sorceries from your hand and, and you shall um, have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and, and your pillars um, uh, from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. 
and I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. You may be seated. Father, we're so grateful to have your word. There is no word like your word. Every word of yours is true, and it is so needed for us to hear your word from you. And so our prayer is that your spirit, the very spirit that moved Micah to pen these words, would now move in our hearts, that we would hear and receive, that we would be literally changed and transformed by your true and living word. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start and then end by simply taking a look at verse 2. And yet, before we consider verse 2, I would just remind us of kind of where we're at in the, in the flow of Micah. There's a couple of textual markers to kind of move us along as to knowing how we're to make, making progress in verse 2 here. But now you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, I think that corresponds with a, a textual marker back in verse 8 of chapter 4. And you, O tower of flock, the hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, for the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. 4.8 talks about a king that will come back to Jerusalem. 5.2 talks about where that king who will come back to Jerusalem will come from. Jerusalem, the city of David, shall once again have a king who will come from the hometown of David, Bethlehem. Now, in between 4.8 and 5.2, Micah deals with the, some of the present sufferings that uh, Judah and Israel are experiencing Experiencing because, as we've noted, Israel and Judah were themselves being disciplined by the hand of God. They were being disciplined because of their idolatry, chapter 1, because of their greed, chapter 2, because of their many hosts of injustices, Micah, chapter 3. And, and this discipline that is presently upon them will last until the one returns to Jerusalem, to the one who comes from Bethlehem returns to Jerusalem. 5.2 and following what we've just read, in a sense, revisits the message of hope that was presented to us in 4, 1 through 8 that God is judging and disciplining, and, and yet for his covenant people, there is this promise of hope and promise of salvation. And much of what we see played out now in our verses this morning, 5, 2 through 15, uh, a parallel with uh, the message of hope and salvation and the outcome of that that we, that we considered that, uh, in, in 4, 1 through 8. And yet, what 5.2 and following focus on 
is this hope that they are being assured of and promised. This, this hope will arrive in a person who will be born in Bethlehem and will ascend to the throne in Jerusalem. Now, and when that unfolds, he will restore the, 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 the future of his people. Now, m- much like many other things that we read in these Old Testament prophets, we're so unfamiliar with these guys, which is one of the reasons that it's necessary that we try to preach through some of these, because we would on our own go and hide and avoid these. And so we're unfamiliar with this. But, but when, the, when the prophets spoke these prophecies, some of these prophecies had an immediate near fulfillment and some had a long-term way out there fulfillment and, and some had both. Some of those immediate fulfillments also would have an ultimate long-term fruition. And that's what we see playing here. I would divide five 2 through 15 into two segments and it's specified for you there in the outline if that's helpful and that is when this one from Bethlehem comes and ascends to the throne in Jerusalem he will restore the futures of his people he will be the one first of all who will instill peace in his people you see that played out in 5 2 through 9 But secondly, and almost kind of, it feels like almost just the flip opposite of it, when this king comes, uh, he will be the one who inflicts violence. Now again, the prophets would maybe only understand this partially or even cryptically, not not fully as, as you and I would because we have the advantage of now reading other things about this in the, in the New Testament. But, uh, that, but this one who will come and instill peace to his people and this one who will come and inflict violence, uh, um, perhaps uh, looking now through the lens of the New Testament, we see that this is carried out in stages. And so uh, what I would suggest to you is that 5, 2 through 9 really focus upon the present and then uh, 5, 10 through 15 uh, overlaps in some way in the present. We'll consider that in a moment, but, 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 but also have uh, even a greater implication in terms of the future. Now, first of all, just some things about this one who will come. Um, the one who will instill peace and the one who will inflict violence. Uh, well, being born in Bethlehem, as the text tells us, it, it really narrows us uh, that he's from the tribe of Judah, which is the tribal line that the Old Testament can, predicts would, would come the Messiah. And in particular, I would suggest to you that he is, um, by linking him to Bethlehem, he's reminding us that he will come from the line of David, the, the broken uh, line of King David will be restored uh, through this one who will come. Uh, and, 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 and it just alludes to here um, in um, uh, verse 
two, uh, his coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now, that just could simply mean that, that this has been talked about and promised a long time ago. But, but I would suggest to you that maybe it implies even more than that. In fact, when we read in the book of Daniel, ancient of days is not just a reference to a past time. It's actually a tag or, a, or, or identifier of the Messiah himself. So perhaps even already cryptically, as the Old Testament often does, we are told that this one who will be born in Bethlehem will, will in some way be God and in some way he will be man. He will come from the line of David and he will be the ancient of days. Verse 4 even underscores the, something of the robustness, the, the, even literally perhaps even the deity of this one who will come from the line of David. It says, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock. This king ain't sitting when this unfolds. He's standing and shepherding his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. This, this one who will come from Bethlehem and return to Jerusalem, this one, uh, he will have the power and authority of God. We know him as it finally works out. He will not merely have the power and authority of God. Uh, he will, in fact, be God, the God-man the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will shepherd his people. Now, uh, shepherd is certainly a term that refers to the guy who uh, literally uh, kept watch over a flock of animals on the hillside. But in the Old Testament, a shepherd was also a description of a ruler, a king. And and, and what that really implied was any sort of king or ruler uh, would rule and lead for the good and for the benefit of his people in this one will do just that. It says they, they will dwell secure. And what I really want us to focus upon in our first point is there what it says at the very end of verse 5, and he shall be their peace. When this one from, from Bethlehem comes, when this one comes, he will stand and shepherd. His sheep will dwell secure. Uh, and he will be the peace of his people. The, a contemporary of Micah, another prophet who prophesied in the same time, the, uh, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we, uh, we, we, we probably are reminded and know uh, that one of the descriptions of the, uh, one of the, one of the descriptions of the Messiah will that he would be the prince of peace. When this one from Bethlehem comes, then the implication of how that lands on his people, whom he will shepherd, whom, that whom will dwell secure in his protective custody, is that his people will experience a profound and genuine and true peace. Again, this is where I think the prophet's uh, sometimes don't help differentiate for us that maybe even some of this facet of peace will come in stages. Some of the peace that the Messiah brings in his first coming is not the complete and ultimate and total peace that the Messiah will bring at his second coming. That doesn't make it any less peace at the moment 
When he comes, there will be peace because peace has arrived. He will be their peace. Literally, probably most literally it reads, and he will be peace. Not a total, not an absolute, not an exhaustive, not a universal world peace, but true, genuine peace nonetheless. When Jesus arrives, and sure enough, where did he come from? He came from Bethlehem. When he arrived and began to, to his ministry, his three-year ministry on this earth, and when that three-year ministry culminates in his death on the cross, then already what he has done uh, through his life and through his teaching and through his instruction and through his accomplishment on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, he automatically brings a true, genuine dimension of peace for his people. In verse 7 and verse 8 of our passage, it talks about a remnant of Jacob, a remnant of Jacob. And also then in 5 through 9, he talks about this, this one who will be their peace that's being played out in the midst of Conflict in the midst of suffering, in the midst of oppression. He talks about there when, uh, in verse 5, uh, he shall be their peace, and when the Assyrians come into our land and tread in our places. So there is conflict even amid this dimension of peace that is already operational with the, through the arrival of the one who will come from Bethlehem. And that was true in Micah's time. There was an immediate impact of this promise. And it's true for us now that Jesus has immediately come. The people of Judah and Israel were given peace in, in view of what the Messiah would do, that, that God was tipping his hand and showing them what he was about to do, that the, he held the future in his hands. That truth, that reality would give them a peace amidst their conflict at that moment. But how much more when that one who was prophesied about actually arrives and the kind of peace that he would bring instantly and immediately upon his people. What kind of peace are we talking about? I would, think, I would suggest to you right here and right now, here's the kinds of levels of peace that are available for God's people in Christ Jesus to experience. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, because of the shed blood of Jesus, you and I, through faith in Jesus, can have peace with God. The very God who made us, the very God who we were estranged from because of our sin, the very God whose holiness demands that, that we be under his curse and condemnation. This now one uh, that through the blood of Jesus we are reconciled with and we have peace with this God. Right here, right now. But Ephesians 2 takes that dimension of peace and, and, and doesn't direct it Vertically, it directs it horizontally. There is a kind of peace that God's people can experience right here and right now. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 21, it talks about the kind of peace that can exist with brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of their 
of their quirks and regardless of their ethnicities and regardless of their backgrounds, uh, that the blood of Jesus tears down any kind of hostilities and dividing walls, and the blood of Jesus makes one new man out of the people of God. And so here right now, you and I can be a preview of eternal peace, of, of a future peace, by, by living in peace with each other through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. His blood has purchased that kind of peace. And there's another kind of peace. And I would refer us to John chapter 14, verse 27, on the very eve in which he was going to be crucified on the cross. And, and, his, and his followers were kind of waving, wa wavering and shaking because they knew that something bad was about to unfold. And, and their hearts were troubled and unsettled. And he, and he says to them, peace I give to you. That's not a, a vertical piece. It's not even a horizontal piece, but it is a real internal piece. And, and I would suggest to you that's how it's played out here because in, as, as, we, as we track through uh, verses 5 through 9, as I've already alluded to, the kind of peace that the one from Bethlehem would bring is a kind of peace that is instilled in people who are nevertheless living in circumstantial and environmental conflict. We already have peace. And yet, there is not all the peace that he intends to fully give to his people in the end. The Assyrians, and yet I think the Assyrians are just an example. Uh, that, 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 that in a sense, the, the, the fullness of this peace uh, will come amid the Assyrians. Perhaps even the mention of Nimrod there, that could be, in verse 6, that could be another reference to the Assyrians. It could be a, a reference to the Babylonians. The, 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 the point is, is that there will be, um, there will not be a total, complete world peace until the Messiah comes again. But before he comes again, we are not left with nothing. We are left with the Spirit of God that instills and assures us that we through Jesus have, faith, have peace with God, that, that we through Jesus can experience peace with each other and that we through Jesus can experience peace within our own troubled hearts. And yet that does not imply that everything swirling around us will be peaceful. What do we do in the meantime? We wait we seek the Lord. We live in obedience. And we do good. And we can do those things because the kind of peace that Jesus instills in his heart today, the kind, in our hearts today, the kind of peace that is operative in a conflictive world is the kind of peace that can energize us to seek the Lord to wait upon the Lord, to obey the Lord, and to do good for the glory of the Lord. Because see, when Jesus came the first time, it, 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 
The, the violence that was operative was a violence that he himself absorbed on himself. He signed up to receive violence. And when God raised him from the dead, then he conquered that violence. And he now gives us peace with our God. He now gives us peace with each other. And he now gives us peace within. Oh, if you've never done so, turn to Jesus. Trust only in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who was born in Bethlehem is the one who is peace. The one who was born in Bethlehem is the one who, and he's the only one who can be your peace. So that your heart doesn't rage, so that your heart is not overcome with anxiousness, so that your heart is not overcome with fears, so that you don't watch the news and are seized in a panic, but you trust in the one who holds us in his hands the one who has given us peace with God, so now he is our father whom we can turn to, the one who gives us peace with each other, so now we can be a family, a community of people who seek to do the honor of the, to obey and honor the Lord together, and the one who drops his spirit in us so that we, by the very presence of the spirit of God, can sense and operate out of his peace. But the peace that we can have this morning is not the only peace that's being promised and spoken of here. And that takes us to the second point. Ironically, the one who signed up to receive violence is the one who will, in the end, return, show up, and inflict violence. Look at how he says this in verses 10 through 15. It says, and in that day, so he's now casting this forward to when these things that he's talked about will come to fruition. In that day, declares the Lord. And, 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 and all that's listed here are very violent, destructive terms. Eight times in these six verses, there is language of violence that is being described here. And in that day, declares the Lord, and, 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 and what I want us to see is there seems to be something intriguing in play in verses 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. He seems to be directing this violence, if you would, which I'm going to call discipline. He seems to be directing that toward the people of Judah. I will cut off your horses, not their horses. But then when he gets to verse 15, he shifts gears, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. But look at, look at what's being played out on that day. I will cut off your horses from among you. I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land. I will throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off all sorceries from your hand. And you shall have no more tellers of fortune. I will cut off all your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. 
Now, he, he could be speaking, the, the, the you and the your could be the, the, the Assyrians and the enemies of the Lord, and, and, and that's very possible. And, and yet what is true is that all of these things that he's saying that he will destroy and inflict violence on is not just something that the enemies of God were flirting with and playing with. Tragically, these are the same shenanigans and sins that, the, that, that God's covenant people were flirting with and playing with. So it seems like verses 10 through 14 are describing a, a, a violent work that God presently is doing with his people to such a time that he kicks in and does the violent work that's described in verse 15, which we're not there yet, so don't peek. He says, I will, I will cut off your horses and your chariots. I, 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 will, I will cut off your, your cities and I will throw down your strongholds. I would suggest to you that he's saying to his people, I will take out every shred and ounce that you still have left in you that is causing you to rely upon anything and everything other than me, the greatest of things, for your defense. Remember a while ago I said that Jesus, even right now, brings peace to his people. Do you know sometimes why you and I don't experience that peace that Jesus talks about. Now, this is going to cut. But, but sometimes you and I, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to Jesus in prayer. Do you see this wonderful word here? I'm going to cut down your horses. I'm going to cut down your chariots. I'm going to bring down your cities. I'm going to destroy your strongholds. You will have nothing or no one left to depend upon. Those things can't bring you peace anyhow. I'm going to do violence against whatever remains in you, in us. That is keeping us from turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, he goes even deeper that I will cut off your sorceries. Uh, 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 no more will there be tellers of fortune among you. I will cut off your carved images and, and there will be pillars no more that you will bow down to. I will root out your astral images and destroy your cities. Every false practice, every false God, every idolatrous worship, I'm going to take it out of you. That's a kindness. Now, why would he be so violent with people like us? We're beautiful people. Because inside of us, there are still remaining vestiges that will, that will be our own saboteur of experiencing the peace that the one from Bethlehem can bring us. This is a good violence. This is a violence that that we see bore out in, should, we should see it bore out on some level in our lives, even today, before the Lord comes and brings final judgment, he brings disciplinary actions against his children. 
Because he loves us. Why? Because he wants to take us to the end of ourselves. He wants to shred us from every false hope and every false practice and every false God because he wants us to have him as our peace. That's a hard word, but it's a good word. Our loving God is committed to tearing us down. I mean that in, a, in, in this way and not in that way. What I mean by that is he's committed to ripping out every remaining element that would trust in a horse and trust in a chariot and trust in a stronghold or trust in a wall around a city or, or whatever sort of man-made objects that we could feel comfortable with. Our God is loving, and he says, you don't need that. You need me. Here, let me help you rip it out. But when we get to the New Testament, it's not just he who says, I'll rip it out. He tells us, put to death whatever remains earthly within you. There's a good sense in which we even need to go violent on ourselves in following the pattern. Now, violent on ourselves in what way, in what context? Whatever is in you and me that is hesitant and uh, resistant to trusting in the Lord that, and, and to living a life that is pleasing to the Lord, then you and I need to go off on that. We need to be violent with that. Now, I know I'm using this language, and some of you have been the recipients of horrible violence, and I, and I understand that this is, this is probably hard to hear when, when you have violence committed against you to, for me to use the word violence in a good way, but in, I, I do mean this in a good way as I'm trying to define it and describe it. And yet when he gets to verse 15, I would suggest to you that there is a, a fundamental Climax and an ultimate shift here because he goes not just from you and your, well, he says in verse 15, and in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Something ultimate about that. And the great irony is that when that unfolds, when we, when we read in the book of Revelation that, that God does, that Jesus does come on a white horse and, and, and in anger and in wrath and fix, inflicts vengeance on the nations that did not obey him. You know what comes in the aftermath of that? Uh, this, he is our peace. And in that sense and in that day, it will be a total absolute, comprehensive, exhaustive, universal world peace. Why? Because every remaining vestiges of sin and wickedness have been slain and brought down because the vengeance of God has inflicted that upon the nations. Now, now here when we hear wrath and anger and vengeance, we are like, Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're, we're, not, we're not talking about a God who has a raging temper out of control. We are nevertheless talking about a God who has a holy, settled hatred towards sin and wickedness.
You say, well, isn't that like that Old Testament wrath of God stuff? Yes, it is Old Testament wrath of God stuff. But that Old Testament wrath of God stuff, guess what? Shows up in the New Testament as well. Same God. In fact, listen to this. In Romans 16, 20, it says, And the God of peace will soon crush the head of Satan. And when the head of Satan is ultimately crushed, and when all of his chummy buddies are ultimately crushed, what will be left? Peace. Peace. And let me close with a word about this prophecy of the one who will come from Bethlehem, who will instill peace in his people and will inflict violence on his enemies. What I find so intriguing is that when we read in Matthew chapter 2 that actually quotes Micah 5.2, it does it in such a fascinating way and yet, and yet somewhat of a troubling way. And what I mean by that is this. We are told in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is probably a, a little toddler by now. He's been born, and, and yet after he was born, uh, God put a star up in the sky, and some wise men or magi from the east began to travel and, and to follow this star, and, and they arrived in Jerusalem and, 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 and they, they don't see the one they're looking for. Uh, and, and so they go to Herod and they ask Herod, uh, where is the one born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. And Herod scrambles and scratches his head. He goes and grabs some of the, the top chief priests and scribes of the Jewish people. And he says, what's up? These guys are from a long distance and they're here to worship the king of the Jews. No one's told me anything about where will the king of Jews be born? And so they, they, they get the directions and the chief priests and the scribes know exactly where the, where the Messiah will be born. And they quote Micah 5 too. And, and with that then they depart and they leave Herod, they leave the chief priests, they leave the scribes and, and they go to Bethlehem. And they worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what I find so troubling about that is neither Herod nor the Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests or the scribes who knew the right answer. And now Herod knows it as well because they passed it on to him those guys come to see Jesus and to worship him. You see, you and I can know true things about Christ, but not truly know Christ. Knowing that Christ died on the cross and rose again is a precious thing to know. But you can know this precious thing and it not at all be precious to you. A Christian is 
more than someone who possesses Christian information. Oh, Americans need to hear this. And since you and I are Americans, we need to hear this. We got all the facts down. We've been singing Christmas songs for years, and let's keep on singing them. And, and, and yet a Christian is more than someone who possesses Christian information. Information alone is incomplete in the formation of a Christian. You see, with that information about Christ, you and I must Turn to Christ. He must not be merely someone whom we know about. He must be someone that we intimately, personally know because we have come to him. I think the wise men from the East are a wonderful template for us to mull over. Christ must be preeminently precious to us for us to be a Christian. Christ must be the one whom we worship. Father, help us now. We know even more than the chief priests and Herod and the scribes know about Jesus. And Father, may our knowing not just be a head knowledge, something we could factually spit out. But Father, may we be those who have received that knowledge and in so doing have turned and received Christ so that Christ is precious and beautiful and true and real and lovely to us so that Christ orders how we, in fact, we would live this very week. That we would worship Christ not just by going through rituals and motions as we gather for church, but that we would worship Christ in our own hearts, in our own lives, even when we're not in this building, because Christ is real and precious to us. And Father, out of the worship of Christ, may we receive the peace that he gives to his people. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.